Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to And the Oscar goes to... Hello and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen. And that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Thank you for joining us for this one, Around the World in 80 Days. That is our Best Picture winner for this week. Yeah, the 29th. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy to think that we've done 29 Academy Awards already. I know. They just keep going by and going by. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you're up to this point with us, I mean, I assume you've listened to at least one other episode. So that's pretty <laughs> awesome. So like we begin every episode, we will give you the news about Penny. A pup date. Penny, for those of you who don't know yet, is our little Cavalier King Charles Spaniel with a little bit of beagle mixed in. All around fluff ball. Yes. She, uh, this week has rediscovered her undying passion for the soft blankets that we have. (laughs) It's colder now, at least a little chillier. So we've broken out the blankets in our downstairs area. And I have this one blanket that Zach doesn't like, but I love it. It's It's a little too warm for me. Yeah, it's very, very thick and fluffy. It's basically a comforter, but it's not technically it lives on the couch in the winter yeah so i burrow into it in the winter time but penny oh she can't resist it she loves it it's the greatest thing that she's ever encountered well and whenever she sees it on the couch like she has stopped sleeping on all the other chairs we have and other places that she might usually sleep because she would prefer to sleep on this blanket. Yeah, she has a pretty regular rotation where she, you know, is one place for two hours and then moves to a different chair. And that has all gone out the window in favor of the one blanket to rule them all. Yes. So if these days you're ever by our apartment and you're wondering where Penny is. She's on the super comf blanket. no further than the blanket. And she is so funny because she will twist herself around so many times. You know, the way that dogs do where they're like circling, circling and digging themselves sort of a little hole. And then she will burrow up into it so small. So little. She's so tiny. And she like curls herself into the smallest little ball. And like she even will put her nose into this blanket. Yeah. She's like full on burrowing for winter. Yeah, she's quite a silly pup. Yeah, and I should note, it's not like it's that cold. I mean, no, it's, it's not Los that Angeles. Cold. It's right. not that cold. So. It just happens to be a little bit colder <laughs> than the summer. And Penny just uses that as an excuse to be comfortable. Yeah, she's a winter dog. Yes. But that's the news with Penny. Yeah, good job, Penny. So on to the film. This week, we are talking about Around the World in 80 Days. Yes, and I will begin with a recap. In 1872, Phileas Fogg makes a bet with others in his social club that he can travel around the world in only 80 days. He and his valet, Passepartout, set off that afternoon in a balloon, first to Spain, then through Italy. Once to India, they rescue a princess who accompanies them on the rest of their journey. They go through Hong Kong and Thailand to Yokohama, Japan, where they get a boat to San Francisco. There they board the Transcontinental Railroad, on which they are attacked by Native Americans. 
From New York City, they board a small boat to Liverpool, which they dismantle piece by piece to burn for the steam power until they arrive. Once in England, they think they have failed, only to realize since they crossed the international dateline, they miscounted their travel days. Fogg then arrives at the club on the 80th day, just on time, fulfilling his promise and winning the bet. Ta-da! This one was a fun one. This felt very different than most things we've watched so far. Yes, that is for sure. I mean, mostly because it was fun. It was silly, like comical. It's like an adventure comedy epic. Yeah. And of course, it's based on the Jules Verne novel. Right. Very similar. Yeah. Uh, Also, it's an interesting movie for those who haven't seen it because, I mean, a big part, I would say 50% of the actual movie is not the plot, but rather showcasing different places around the world and different Mm -hmm. cultural things, which I thought was actually very cool, especially considering the time period where I would imagine most Americans who are seeing this movie haven't really traveled to Shanghai or Hong Kong or Mm -hmm. Spain, any of these places. Yeah, and it really showcases a lot of things we were saying during while watching like most people probably had never seen this there was a clip used at the beginning of the film in the like prologue thing of uh, the earth from space and apparently this may have been the first time ever that the public had seen that footage too wow that's very cool of what the earth actually looked like from mm-hmm. space. You know what this film, I was going to say this when we were watching it, it reminded me of when you go to Epcot in Disney World. Yeah. And you like watch the little videos in the different countries. I feel like it was just this all Well, and together. especially because it was showcasing the like Cinerama. I mean, yeah. it felt like a Disney World film, even yeah. though it was not made by Disney. <laughs> it was exactly like what you would see in Disneyland or Disney World. Yeah. Well, would you like to start us off by talking about the ceremony? Yeah, I would love to. Today we are talking about the 29th Academy Awards. Um, They were held on March 27th, 1957 at the Arceo Pantages Theater in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and simultaneously at the NBC Century Theater in New York City. Of course. Still doing both bi-coastal. Uh, Jerry Lewis hosts in Los Angeles and Celeste Holm uh, hosts in New York City by oh, herself. Oh, wow. Very cool. And for those of you who don't necessarily know who she is, she starred in Gentleman's Agreement, All About Eve, The Snake Pit, High Society, and she originated the role of Edo Annie in the movie version of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. So you've seen her face. She's, you know, a very popular actress. Well, and she's even popular, like, well into her old age, yes. too. So you would recognize her as an older woman now. Sure. Uh, This was the first Oscar telecast to be videotaped for a later broadcast, um, especially for network affiliates that couldn't broadcast live this particular year. Um, They've, you know, as we've talked about, there's lots of complications in the types of broadcasts that are happening and especially trying to get it broadcast internationally. Mm -hmm. So this year they broadcast two things, essentially live, and then also they're taping it for later as well. Huh. Interesting. Just a little bit of an adjustment there. I definitely would not... I mean, nowadays it's a little bit different, but I feel like they must not have had a wide, as wide a viewership on the rebroadcast. I mean, once you already know what happens, that's the whole fun of it. Well, and also you have to think people are getting the newspapers. Yeah, right. And they have all that in it. And the newspaper travels significantly faster, I would say, than a rebroadcast of the ceremony. 
So I'm not really sure what the point of that is. I think it's mostly to aid the international viewings. Gotcha. But um, this is the first year that all of the Best Picture nominees are in color. Wah, wah. Isn't that crazy? I mean, I, I thought it was kind of strange when we were watching this film since it's in color and we've watched so few films in color. Mm-hmm. But this year, they are all color pictures. Yeah, very interesting. It, it's kind of a... Um, a turning point in uh, Academy nominations and like the style of film that's popular Mm -hmm. Um, because all of the movies that are nominated for best picture are epics. They're very spectacular, very colorful. You've got big films, the 10 commandments, friendly persuasion, the King and I Mm -hmm. um, giant. These are all films that were just like big blockbuster style films for the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it kind of changes what, gets nominated over the next few years because as we go forward the films that win best picture are also these big budget spectacular movies that you know gg and the bridge on the river kwai and ben-hur these like epic films Mm -hmm. um it also starts to kind of move away for this time period from the smaller dramas that we've been watching essentially Mm -hmm. one of the things i was reading about a lot as i was looking at stuff for this ceremony is there's a lot of speculation about the fact that John Ford's film, The Searchers, did not get nominated for a single thing, Mm. which is one of his classic Westerns. It's a drama. It's kind of smaller. It's like a lot of things that we've watched so far, and it didn't get any attention at all. And a lot of people consider it to be a superior movie than some of the other ones that were nominated this year. Mm -hmm. So it's just a shift in... uh, taste i think yeah for sure this year there is the addition of a new category (gasps) whoa i mentioned this slash hinted at it last week ceremony week that is this year there is the addition of the best foreign language film as a competitive category instead of being a special achievement award or like something else tacked on to the end of the ceremony um there also is one that was nominated for best picture uh the french film grand illusion in 1938 but Mm -hmm. that's the only one that fell into that category so far. So now there is a separate category devoted to foreign language film. Well, and the only other like international films that aren't foreign language so far that have been nominated for Best Picture are British films. Correct. Yeah. So now everybody gets a chance to compete. (laughs) Yeah. A little more. A little bit more. Yeah. Uh, This year, the first film to win in this category is Federico Fellini's La Strada from Italy. Well, and this makes sense. I think also as a way to compete with the other international festivals. Sure, yeah. Because all of them are very internationally focused. Yeah. And there is a really wide range of countries winning every year at Mm -hmm. those festivals. And the Academy Awards is not really a festival. And it's mostly geared to awarding American films and Hollywood things. But... Since there is no major festival in America at this point, it makes sense that they would try to compete in that way, mm-hmm. especially right after they won the Palme d'Or with Marty. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that there's a little bit more thought about this because of Marty's international win the year before. It'd been some time since anything American won at the Cannes Film Festival or otherwise. And mm-hmm. so I think that kind of reinstated that idea. Mm-hmm. Additionally, like the American market is the biggest filmmaking market in the world at this point in time. I think that. I don't know. Americans are very self-focused. And so I don't think there was a lot of care for things that were happening around the world, especially during times of war and strife. Oh, no, especially not. I mean, (laughs) they're not too quick to celebrate other cultures when they're fighting against them. Yeah, that's for sure. But we're going to try to break some of that with this year. One of the things that I wanted to talk about this year was um, the category of 
best original story. Mm-hmm. So I've talked about this in the past, how essentially screenplays and stories have been split into three categories. Mm-hmm. There's what is considered the best adapted screenplay, best original screenplay, and then best story. And story refers not to the screenplay, but to the overall idea of what the story of the film is. Well, and that is remains a distinction, especially in industry terms and for credits yes. and for guilds and associations mm-hmm. and unions and all that. Because there are usually people who come up with a story that is then purchased by mm-hmm. such and such a person, and they have to receive credit and payment sure. because they came up with it, whether they they actually wrote an original story ahead of time or they just said hey i think this would be an interesting story once the actual writers hear that story they have to give credit to that person yeah for sure and different people have different skill sets some people are better writers and some people are better at being creative about the story so Mm -hmm. um but what i want to talk about this week is there are two major kerfuffles that happen here in this category oopsie doopsie (laughs) so the first thing is I talked previously about Dalton Trumbo, mm-hmm. writer of Roman Holiday, who was blacklisted. One of the Hollywood 10, one of the first people to get blacklisted uh, during the Red Scare. Mm-hmm. Um, so this year, the film The Brave One is nominated for Best Original Story under the pseudonym Robert Rich, which is Dalton Trumbo's pseudonym. Uh, so, of course, as we look back in history, we can give this to Dalton Trumbo as a nomination. But mm-hmm. at the time, he was not able to be nominated for this film. Right. So we're still kind of in the middle of all that. The other thing that happened. (laughs) So last week, you may recall, I talked about Grace Kelly Mm -hmm. uh, on our Academy Archives. And one of her final films was the film High Society, Mm -hmm. a musical based on the story, The Philadelphia Story. Right. They intended to nominate this film for Best Original Story. They accidentally nominated a different film titled High Society. It was a Bowery Brothers comedy film. So the Bowery Brothers have put out several series of these slapstick comedy films. They are not even really full length. They're kind of short films that are very silly. They've been coming out since like the late 20s, early 30s. And they release a film called High Society. (laughs) (laughs) that the Academy accidentally nominated instead of the Grace Kelly picture. And so Edward Burns and Elwood Ullman, who received this nomination, they didn't know what to do because they're not the writers of the adaption of the musical that was supposed to be. So they end up withdrawing from the competition and feeling very embarrassed throughout the whole kerfuffle. Yeah, this is such a weird thing. Like, how do you accidentally nominate like the Ron film? Yeah, I don't understand. Well, and the other thing that is because everybody that is voting to nominate thinks they're voting for the one that's actually the right one. Right. But yeah, but like, I don't know. It's a it must be like a weird clerical error. That's what I was just going to say. To me, it sounds like everybody intended for the specific high society with Grace Kelly to be nominated. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that's everyone's intent. No one was thinking about this film at all. Right. And someone accidentally sent the wrong thing to the wrong person and printed the wrong thing in the wrong paper. And Mm -hmm. here we are. Yeah. Uh, When the nominations went out, they were nominated and were very confused. (laughs) And the writers of high society were also confused the other version uh-huh um the other thing that's complicated though that makes this even worse is that the film high society is not an original story and so it doesn't even qualify for this category right because it's based on the play the philadelphia <laughs> story well and i'm wondering if that was part of it because like somebody sending it out was probably in my mind could have been thinking like 
oh, high society. Oh, wait, that wasn't an original piece. I guess there was a high society that was original. Maybe that was the one they meant. <laughs> Some intern is like, oh, I fixed it. Yeah. <laughs> so this ends up becoming a pre-Academy Awards kerfuffle that is dealt with internally. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, it's very embarrassing for everyone, everyone involved. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ugh. And like the Bowery brothers, of course, laugh about the situation. They right. think it's funny. Well, and it's no skin off their teeth because their their story was an original story, I'm sure. <laughs> and like they weren't necessarily meant to be nominated, but they got to have a laugh about it. Sure. And then the other one, once it was like, oh, that was the one we were supposed to nominate. Oh, it's not even original. So yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> ugh, all around awkward and just like, ugh. It's tough when stuff like that happens because it just like undermines the credibility of whatever the Academy is. And it undermines the credibility of high society as a film (laughs) Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the other people's, the other guys, the Bowery Brothers, them in general, and also their film. Because it's like, oh, instead of saying, oh, well, let's just keep you nominated. Then it's like, whoopsie, not you. Yeah. Forget about it. Well, and it in a way undermines other wins. Um, I mean, we've talked about other Academy kerfuffles in the past with the Franks when they call out the right. wrong director or, of course, we'll get to it in the future, but the La La Land Moonlight incident. Like, mm-hmm. And uh, we'd all love to believe that these things are innocent and that they're mistakes and humans make mistakes, but they also undermine the wins of the films that do win these categories and the people that win these categories because instead of being remembered for winning best picture or best original story or best director people remember remember when both of the franks were nominated and got called up and Mm -hmm. it was awkward for everybody remember when we sent a camera crew to judy garland's house and she she didn't didn't win win. yeah remember when we moved the chadwick boseman win supposed win to the end to highlight it and he didn't win i just cringe i cringe (laughs) it's so bad it's so bad well and then it just takes away from the whole moment like you were saying like so anyways that's the the uh situation this year there's a lot of other things that happened in the ceremony though that i still want to talk about so it's kind of a an interesting year um so james dean becomes the only actor with two posthumous nominations for acting Mm -hmm. uh, and they're also consecutive which is another record unto itself yeah and in, in a way, it makes sense. You know, an actor makes a couple films in a year and they both get nominated back to back. So mm-hmm. there's that. Ingrid Bergman uh, could not collect her award this year for Best Actress. Hmm. She wins Best Actress for the film Anastasia and her portrayal in that. Uh, but she was in Paris at the time. Uh, Cary Grant accepts it on her behalf instead. But she was also presenting the award for Best Director. So she did so via a pre-recorded tape from her rooftop in Paris. Oh, my. And then uh, Jerry Lewis gave out the award in the end. Mm. So that was part of the ceremony as well. Uh, They love to, like, show how exotic Hollywood is, you know, and how glamorous and full of travel and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This ceremony was the second time since the introduction of the supporting actor and actress categories um, that Best Picture, Best Director, and all four of the acting Oscars were given to different films. Yeah. Um, so weird. Yeah. So it, it's only happened one time before, and it won't happen again until the 78th Academy Awards, which wow. is the year that Crash wins Best Picture and mm-hmm. Brokeback Mountain and all those <laughs> films, and it couldn't have been a more weird year then. Right. And, you know, as we watched this film, it makes a lot of sense to me how that could happen because 
I can see how this wins best picture, but why would you nominate any of the acting in it? Yeah. Or like directing of it or, you know, so yeah, all of that gets put to different places. Hmm. Uh, It also becomes the sixth film to win best picture without any acting nominations. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and like you said, again, it's just a novelty piece and the actors are in it and they're fine, but like, they're also sort of not the focus of the film yeah. in a way. Right. They're they're kind of just conduits for the adventure of the story. Yeah. There's one last thing I want to talk about during this ceremony um, that, I don't know, maybe I should have talked about this sooner, but I feel like I, I owe it to everybody to talk about. Hmm. Um, and that is this year, the actor Yul Brenner wins Best Actor for his portrayal of the King of Siam in The King and I. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is an actor in yellow face. Mm-hmm. He is a Russian-American actor playing a Siamese character. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. And this kind of stuff has happened before uh, where white actors have played other ethnicities. Um, we're only up to the 29th Academy Awards, and it's already happened a couple times. Mm-hmm. And so... I wanted to take a moment because in this specific instance, he's playing a very famous and popular character from a very famous and popular musical, but there were other actors that could have played this role. And so I just want to take a moment to recognize some of the Asian American actors or Asian actors that were working in Hollywood at the time mm-hmm. um, that didn't get nominations for their work up to this point. And to just kind of, tri- I don't know, to just kind of give a moment to uh, appreciate their contributions to the Hollywood industry during the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, this period where many Asian Americans were not front and center of the Hollywood machine. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first person I wanted to highlight was uh, Japanese actor Sesu Hayakawa. He uh, rose to prominence during the silent era, and he was the silent brooding villain type. And he also was known as a very prominent sex symbol for American women because of his hunkiness. He Mm. was very popular for that. Um, He, of course, was extremely talented. He thrived on Broadway. He did a lot of performance in New York um, and then eventually returned to film. He starred in over 80 features, um, most notably uh, 1931's Daughter of the Dragon and 1957's Best Picture, The Bridge on the River Kwai. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to talk about him more next week. But awesome. he was an amazing actor during this time period. The other actress that is a little bit more popular right now, of course, um, that people reflect on in her work was Anna Mae Wan. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the daughter of a second generation Taiwanese Chinese American. Um, but she was born in Los Angeles and she became an international movie star through the twenties. Uh, she was in the thief of Baghdad, but she really, really struggled to find roles that didn't typecast her as the Asian woman stereotype, Mm. uh, at that time. Um, she campaigned so, so hard to play the character of Olan in the 19th, the 1937, uh, version of the good earth, Mm -hmm. which we talked about. Of course, she lost this role to Louise Rayner, mm-hmm. who played the role in Yellowface uh, and ended up winning Best Actress for this portrayal. Uh, this is devastating to Anna Mae Wan, of course, because she campaigned so hard for this role. And it was a role that was really personal to her and that she felt that she would have done an amazing job with. She has a great career, though, for herself. And she eventually ends up making TV history in 1957 with her show, The Gallery of Madame Lee Song, the first of its kind to feature an Asian-American lead. Hmm, nice. Finally, I just wanted to also mention um, Japanese native actress Miyoshi Umeki. 
She is the first Asian woman to win an Oscar for acting. We'll talk about her next year in 1957, Sayonara. Uh, It's a film that talks about racism and uh, prejudicial laws. And uh, she plays one of the leads in that. And she becomes... Across from Marlon Brando. Across from Marlon Brando. Yes, yes. So we'll talk about that more next week. But I just wanted to highlight her as another accomplished actor. She ends up being nominated for Tony Awards, Golden Globe Awards. She works on Broadway and TV. And she has a very, very illustrious and busy career. And I just say this because I find it to be very disappointing as we talk about these historical failings of the Academy and of the Hollywood industry. And I feel like a lot of Asian actors don't get the recognition that they deserve. And so um, I just wanted to make sure we mentioned some of the people who were working and contributing to the art and that we don't get a chance to talk about very often. Yeah. Well, and it's sad because Yul Brynner simply just did what was asked of him. Yeah. And he performed the role well. But it's frustrating when people were not sticking up for Asian actors Mm -hmm. and trying to cast them in roles like this and realizing their talent and allowing them to play the roles that they should have been playing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like you just said, it's a shame to see good actors in these roles because there are other good actors too that could play these roles. Right. Anna Mae Wong could have done just as well as Louise Rayner, if not better. Um, And that just wasn't the way that things worked. So, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it'll be better as we get, you know, farther along in history, but it still isn't great. I mean, there's still a lot of issues with casting, even up to the last few years, as we've, you know, talked about more recent ceremonies. So Mm -hmm. that's what I have to share for this week. Um, Finally, I'll just go through some of our award winners for this year to wrap us up. Uh, of course, our best picture for this year is Around the World in 80 Days, produced by Mike Todd. Mm-hmm. Best director goes to George Stevens for Giant. Mm-hmm. Best actor goes to Yul Brenner, as I just mentioned, for The King and I. Best actress goes to Ingrid Bergman for the role of Anna Koreff in Anastasia. Mm-hmm. Best supporting actor goes to Anthony Quinn for Lust for Life. Best supporting actress goes to Dorothy Malone for Written on the Wind. Best screenplay original goes to The Red Balloon. Best Screenplay Adapted goes to Around the World in 80 Days. That's mm-hmm. the other award that we, it wins this year. Yeah. Best Story goes to The Brave One, which is now attributed to Dalton Trumbo. Mm-hmm. Best Foreign Language Film for the very first time mm-hmm. goes to La Strada from Italy. And I figure I'll just mention the other films that were nominated in this category. Great. The Burmese Harp from Japan. The Captain from Kopenick from Germany. Gervais, I don't know if I pronounced that one right, from France. And... Kivotak, I probably didn't say that right either, from Denmark. I probably shouldn't have tried to do that. But anyways, those are the international films that are nominated this year. Good job, friends. (laughs) Best documentary feature goes to The Silent World. Best documentary short subject goes to The True Story of the Civil War. Best live action short subject one reel goes to Crashing the Water Barrier. Best live action short subject two reel goes to The Bespoke Overcoat. Best short subject cartoon goes to Magoo's Puddle Jumper. (laughs) I have to say these things, so. (laughs) Best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Around the World in 80 Days. Uh Uh, This is a a posthumous award to Mm -hmm. Victor Yun. It is. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to The King and I. Best song goes to Que Sera Sera, or What Will Be Will Be. From The Man Who Knew Too Much. Interesting. Did you know that was from 1957? No. I did not either. I always think of um, Heather's when I oh. hear that song because it's like the <laughs> opening credits. 
Best sound recording goes to The King and I. Best art direction, black and white, goes to Somebody Up There Likes Me from Cedric Gibbons. Haha. <laughs> He's still working. Best art direction in color goes to The King and I. Best cinematography in black and white goes to Somebody Up There Likes Me. Best cinematography in color goes to Around the World in 80 Days. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Um, although, I mean, there's other films like The Ten Commandments yeah. this year. So mm-hmm. it's tough year for cinematography, I'd say. Best costume design in black and white goes to the solid gold Cadillac. Best costume design color goes to The King and I. Best film editing goes to Around the World in 80 Days. And best special effects goes to The Ten Commandments. Huh, interesting. Yeah. There is an Academy Honorary Award that is given to Eddie Cantor, uh, who we've talked about in the past, for distinguished service to the film industry. Mm-hmm. Just another, uh, here's an old friend of the industry, so give him an <laughs> award. Uh, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award goes to... Oh, we to, haven't had one in a while. Yeah, I was thinking that too, but there is one this year that goes to Buddy Adler. Oh. Finally, there is the Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award, which goes to Y. Frank Freeman, um, who was the studio head at Paramount Pictures at the time. Hmm, nice. So yeah, that's the ceremony. Of course, there are performers of the songs that were nominated. Uh, lots of people come out to do that. And in the end, Around the World in 80 Days and The King and I both have the most wins of the night with mm-hmm. five wins each, followed by Somebody Up There Likes Me with two wins. Um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of the way the cookie crumbled this year. Nice. Lots of uh, stuff going on with the ceremony. As always. But uh, yeah, let's take a little break here. And then uh, when we get back, you can tell us about this movie. Great. And we're back. Time for This Year in Film 1956, starting with births. We have Mel Gibson, Imelda Staunton, Gina Davis, Nathan Lane, Richard Karn, Brian Cranston, Clifton Powell, Andy Garcia, Lars Von Trier, Paige O'Hara, Jonathan Roberts, Keith David, Tom Hanks, Joan Allen, Gary Cole, Christoph Waltz, Danny Boyle, Carrie Fisher, Rita Wilson, and Richard Curtis. What? How (laughs) come Nathan Lane seems like decades older than Tom Tom Hanks and Mel Gibson? I mean, Tom Hanks, they really age down. When he, like, they make him look so much younger than he really is in movies. Yeah. Like, when we just watched Greyhound the other night, he, random shout out to Greyhound, uh, he looked <laughs> way younger than he actually looks huh, when you see a picture of him in real life. Yeah. Strangely. Anyways, debuts this year, Jean-Paul Balmondo. Of course, he is the uh, Marlon Brando counterpart in France. Ha, ha, ha. Michael Caine, James Garner. Glenda Jackson, Robert Loggia, Robert Morse, Leslie Nielsen, Joan Plowright, Elvis Presley, John Schlesinger, Maggie Smith, and Cicely Tyson. Wow, nice. Yeah, some pretty classics yeah. in there. Um, some deaths this year are Alexander Korda, a director, Charlie Grapewin, who played Uncle Henry in Wizard of Oz. Oh, okay. But he was in over 100 movies. Charles MacArthur who was the screenwriter of Wuthering Heights, among other films. Kenji Mizuguchi, who is a famous Japanese director at the time. George Bancroft. Victor Young, who is the composer of Around the World in 80 Days. And Jack Cohn, who is the co-founder of Columbia Pictures and brother of Harry Cohn. Mm. So news of the film industry (laughs) from this year 
breaking news with Zach. Let's go. Um, I've been talking about United Artists a lot because yes. they are making moves <laughs> in this uh, time in history. So they at this point are no longer under their 10-year contract. They've made the money back. Right. Yes. So they're well, they're a few years into it. And basically, at the time they made the deal with Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford. This, of course, is Robert Benjamin and Arthur Krim. They proposed that they would take over the company in 10 years if after three years they were profitable. Of course, they were profitable after the first year with the African Queen. So now... It is uh, at the end of 1955, Charlie Chaplin agrees to sell his shares in United Artists for $1.1 million. And then in mid-1956, Mary Pickford sells all of her shares in United Artists for $3 million. So they do already have full control financially and managerially over United Artists after only four years into their deal. Isn't it so funny to think of Charlie Chaplin, businessman? Yeah, it is a little bit strange. Because <laughs> he seems like such a like a goofy, fun-loving guy. Yeah. Also in 1956, United Artists has its best-selling film ever in its uh-huh. history, which is Trapeze, which is a Burt Lancaster-led picture about the circus. Um, apparently, he really wanted to do one <laughs> since he did not get cast in <laughs> The Greatest Show on Earth. <laughs> Um, And it grossed about $8 million, which would soon be completely outdone by Around the World in 80 Days, which is another United Artists film. The American public just loves the circus. My goodness. Yeah, I don't know. They're like fascinated by that. Yeah. You are a living proof. No, I'm not. What is your favorite film? No, it's not my favorite film. Uh You're throwing me under the bus here. The Greatest Showman. Okay, that's not my favorite film, but I do enjoy it very much. All right. To make up some extra cash this year, Warner Brothers decides to sell off the rights to almost all of its pre-1950 film catalog to Associated Artists Productions, which is just an acquisition and distribution company that Hmm. ends up holding a lot of films from different companies throughout the years. And people have since reacquired their films from this company as well. Daryl F. Zanuck announces his retirement from 20th Century Fox after 20 years as head of the studio. We've talked about him so many times. Yes. Wow, the end of an era. Yes. And also, another crazy one, Harry and Albert Warner sell off their (gasps) stock in Warner Brothers, leaving Jack Warner as the sole head of the company. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't (laughs) trust Jack. (laughs) I like Jack. I want the best for Jack. I don't know that I trust Jack. Yeah. Well, and then also MGM appoints Joseph Vogel as their new president. So I actually didn't mention this before, but a couple years prior to this, uh, Louis B. Mayer stepped down and was sort of stepped down, sort of was forced out. I'll talk about him when he tries to uh, stage a coup and (laughs) reacquire his company in a few years. (laughs) All right. We'll wait till then. Um. But yeah, Joseph Vogel is now the new president of MGM. Everything's changing in Hollywood. Yeah, well, and you mentioned that this is just a very big switch in the focus of Hollywood as far as moving into an era of huge, like, mega blockbusters, Mm -hmm. so much money put into these films, so much spectacle. The color, the cinerama. Yeah. Um, We mentioned it in our last episode, um, but on April 18th of this year, Grace Kelly married 
Prince Rainier of Monaco. You mean Princess Grace Kelly. She wasn't a princess before she married him. But she is now. Yes. Also in this year, well, into the early part of 1957, we have the ninth Emmy Awards. Caesar's Hour, which is a comedy, variety, and sketch show, was the first TV show to be nominated and to win all four acting awards. All right. Wow. I've never even heard of that. Yeah. They would hold this record until the miniseries version of Angels in America did it in 2004. (gasps) Oh, so good. And then Schitt's Creek in 2020. (gasps) Heck yeah. Those are the only three shows to ever happen. I mean, I don't know about the Caesars one, but the other two hold up. So that's exciting. Also, uh, this award season, we have the 11th Tony Awards, and the big winners are My Fair Lady and Long Day's Journey Into Night. Ooh, it's a long year. <laughs> People are sitting in those theaters for three and a half hours. Friedrich March wins his second Tony Award, making him the first person to win two. Congratulations. He, of course, would go on to win one more later on in his career. Um, Rex Harrison won for My Fair Lady, but Julie Andrews did not. <laughs> And we will talk more about that. Yeah, that coming. That drama's coming. There's I'm so much for more that. Julie Andrews drama <laughs> to come. Uh, that year's gonna be so fun. Movies she should have been in, awards she should have won, awards she did win. Musicals that were made without her. Musicals that were made with her. <laughs> yep. It's a fun time. Uh Moss Hart wins Best Director for My Fair Lady. And that was the most nominated and had the most wins. 10 nominations, and 6 wins. At the Tonys. Yeah. So now to Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, This film had a budget of $6 million, and it grossed $23 million. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So this breaks the record for most expensive film. Wow. The previous two most expensive films, of course, were A Star is Born from 1954 Mm. and Duel in the Sun from 1946. That doesn't seem to have paid off. I don't know what Duel that movie sun? is. Yeah. No, it was a David O. Selznick mega flop. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was one of the ones that led to his bankruptcy. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was a Western and it cost him like almost $6 <gasps> million. Dollars. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so Around the World in 80 Days finally beats them this year, only to have its budget more than doubled in the same year by the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so, so we're all just throwing money away Over now. $13 million was spent on the Ten Commandments. Uh, in the late 50s. Yeah. So United Artists, I mentioned, released Trapeze in early 1956, which earned their top spot of highest grossing, only to be far outshone by Around the World in 80 Days, of course. So they made about $8 million this year on Trapeze and then another $23 million on Around the World in 80 Days. Good for them. Yeah. They're doing all right. Oh, yeah. Big time. So this film is mostly, I want to talk about... Producer Mike Todd, because this is his one and only film he ever produced. Really? And this is the only chance I'll ever get to talk about him. And (laughs) man, is he a wild person. (laughs) He was formerly known as Avram Hirsch Goldbogen, which was his Jewish name. But of course, you're not allowed to be publicly Jewish at this point in time. Well, his name didn't really... I'll get to that. Uh, He was born to Polish Jewish immigrants in Minneapolis, Minnesota, He was the youngest of nine children, and he got the nickname Todd when he was younger by his siblings as a joke. They pronounced it in the German way, like with a German accent, tote, to mock his inability to pronounce the word coat. (laughs) (laughs) So then his name stuck, and he entered the professional world and dropped his Jewish name and went by Michael Todd. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love siblings. Yes. 
he started working in construction and suddenly had this grand idea <laughs> to create a construction workers college. Okay. Like not like a even school. a year after being a construction worker himself. <laughs> so he started the College of Bricklaying of America. He purchased everything he needed for the school on credit, thinking that he would pay everything back once he had the students paying to attend. Oh, no. The Bricklayers Union decided they would not recognize his school or any graduates as qualifying for employment. So the school was forced to shut down almost immediately. Oh, man. <laughs> um, he and his brother instead... Uh, pivoted, turning the school just into a construction company. All right. (laughs) Uh, With this company, he started contracting with Hollywood Studios to build sound stages while they were all switching to making sound pictures. Oh, yeah, that's smart. uh, Because none of them had soundproof buildings. Uh Uh-huh. That is necessary now. Yes. (laughs) Um, But all of that stopped during the Great Depression when Hollywood halted their expansion and everything. Um, he and his brother were forced to declare bankruptcy and get rid of their company. He was not even 21, and his business endeavors had already lost him over a million dollars. A million. Uh. Which, in today's money, is about $18 million. Oh my gosh, how is he not like in federal prison or something for owing that much money? You can't just go around with that much debt. <laughs> how do you live? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so in Chicago, he went to see a new production of The Mikado. How did he buy tickets? He's broke. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Don't get caught up on that. Uh, So he went to go see this new production of The Mikado. He had actually produced a version of The Mikado. Did it lose money? Of course it did. No, calm down. In high school, he produced his (laughs) high school version of The Mikado. Oh, brother. So for those of you who don't know, The Mikado is a comedy opera by Gilbert and Sullivan. Okay. He went to go see a new performance of this in Chicago, re-envisioned with an all-black cast called The Swing Mikado. Hmm. So it was much jazzier than the Mm -hmm. original, and it had an all-black cast, and it was very cool. Um, It was extremely successful and had been paid for by the Federal Theater Project, which was money apportioned by the New Deal to help live theater survive during the Great Depression. Oh, okay. That's cool. Yeah. So major funds from this went to major cities that had big theaters like this. So he thought he should mirror the success of the Chicago show and produce a similar show on Broadway. So he opened the hot Mikado on Broadway with Bojangles Robinson, who was one of- I talked about that. Yeah. He was one of the most popular black performers and the best black tap dancer in America at the time. So his show on Broadway was so successful that it tanked the version playing in Chicago and in turn tanked the whole federal theater project in Chicago. Are you kidding? (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) That is the worst thing that could happen in that situation. Yes. Oh my gosh. How do you, you can't even celebrate. Be like, I'm doing so good. My show is doing great. I just killed all the theater in Chicago. Yeah, basically. Oh my gosh. Um, So he ended up having a, an extremely strange and successful run of producing on Broadway. He produced 17 Broadway shows, mostly sex themed, including <laughs> Star and Garter, um, oh a show called The Naked Genius for stripper Gypsy Rose Lee. And his most famous and most controversial, Michael Todd's Peep Show, which played at the Winter Garden Theater and ran for 278 performances. 
It included music by Jewel Stein, who wrote Gypsy and Funny Girl, hmm. and also music by the actual king of Thailand. <laughs> what? The man who held, uh, he's the second longest running monarch ever behind Queen Elizabeth. And he Elizabeth. also wrote Mike Todd's Peep Show. <laughs> <laughs> so the New York City Commissioner of Licenses had to have a meeting with Todd after the first couple performances to instate new rules about how women could be treated on the stage, especially after complaints from the nude mermaid performers who couldn't get the blue dye used in the water on stage out of their pubic hair. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We're recording. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I would be upset, too, for the record. That is very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> one of the lasting quotes about this show was one critic who wrote that the show emphasized sex ferociously. Ferociously? Oh my heavens, Bob. How? Okay. <laughs> when Grace Kelly's father considered being an actor just a step above street walking, I kind of am like picturing now what he was picturing. Yeah. Mike Todd's peep show. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was very glamorous. I'm picturing like a Gypsy Rosalie style burlesque stuff. Yeah. Which is, you know, not as gruesome as we think of it as today. Right. It was a little bit more innocent. So in 1950, then, Mike Todd formed the company Cinerama with Lowell Thomas and the inventor of the process and all the equipment used, Fred Waller. So the first feature film using the process uh, wa that was funded and promoted by the Cinerama company was This is Cinerama, which was produced and directed by Mike Todd. Before this film was released, two years later, however, Mike decided to leave the company. He had disagreements with others in the company that the process was not the best that it could be. So he decided to start his own competing company uh, combined with technology from American Optical and called the company Todd AO for Todd and American Optical. Okay. <laughs> the first film using this process was Oklahoma, but because their equipment shot in 30 frames per second and not 24 like regular film, it meant that films needed to be shot multiple times with different cameras or with multiple cameras at slightly different angles simultaneously. Okay. Which, I don't think I understand enough about filmmaking to get it, but I believe it. Yeah. So cameras, typical film cameras, and for those who are listening who don't know, shoot 24 frames in a second. Okay. That's about what the human eye registers. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't look like pictures. It looks like... Like movement. Yeah. 30 frames per second is a little bit faster than that obviously okay so there's six more frames every second so all the film equipment and like projectors are set to play 24 frames every second they can't play 30 frames per second so this equipment which films at oh. 30 frames per second means that if they want to show oklahoma for instance in any regular theater they also have to shoot it in 24 frames per second. Oh my gosh, so they did that? So when they made Oklahoma, Ugh. they shot every scene at least once using 24 frame per second camera and then once using this 30 frame What's per second. What's the point? Well, the wider screen. Okay. So when we watch it today, which one are we watching? Probably the 24 frames per second. Wow, that's a shame. He had never produced a narrative feature film before, um, and Around the World in 80 Days was his first and only, as I mentioned. Uh, Todd had to sell all of his shares in his Todd A.O. company to fund the film. This man is playing with fire. Yeah. 
So Every he's just gone around. like one thing to the next, yeah. like making a bunch of money and then selling all his shares in his companies. And I would not be his friend. He would be too stressful for me. Yeah. Uh, so the film rights for this story had been purchased by British producer and director Alexander Korda in the mid-40s with the rights as well to the musical version written by Cole Porter, which had been produced by Orson Welles, actually. Todd had actually contributed to the funding of that show produced by Orson Welles, um, but he really did not like it, so he decided to take his name off of it as a producer. Hmm. Todd ended up purchasing the rights for the film for 130000 looking for a story that could display his Todd A.O. Cinerama widescreen process. Director Michael Anderson was hired to do the filming in Britain, and then he was going to hire a different director to do the filming in the United States. Um, but then that didn't happen. He just ended up keeping Michael Anderson through the whole production. So the production filmed all over the world for about 160 days, more or less in order of events, actually. Oh, okay. Um, they actually started in Spain in a small town called Chinchon, where they used all 6,500 residents in the town as extras. Huh. And they had to bus in residents from several other small towns in the area so they could use up to 10,000 Spaniards for the <gasps> scenes in Spain. Oh, my heavens. There were so many people in those scenes. Yeah. Todd also made a deal with the royal family in Thailand to use a royal barge and filmed members of the Royal Thailand Navy rowing it. That oh, was the one ship yeah. that we commented on. That was very cool. Um, royalty in Pakistan loaned their herd of elephants and their personal herdsmen for the film. Also very cool. Yeah. Honestly, so cool. There were Native Americans featured in the film from the Cheyenne, Apache, and Ute tribes in the American sequences. Huh. All in all, the cast, including extras, totaled 68,894 <gasps> people. Oh my gosh. Wow. The film also featured 7,959 animals. Wow. Which That's a lot. It included four ostriches, six skunks, 15 elephants, 17 fighting bulls, 512 rhesus monkeys, 800 <laughs> horses, 950 burros, 2,448 American buffalo. <gasps> I was going to ask about that scene. 3,800 Rocky Mountain sheep oh and gosh. one sacred cow that ate flowers on cue. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the I sacred cow? I do remember cow? the sacred cow. He got in big trouble for that. Um, there was also one cat at the reform <laughs> club. Of all of that, just one cat <laughs> and no dogs. Yeah, I guess there was no dogs. Huh. Interesting. Strange. Uh, the wardrobe department spent um, between four and five hundred thousand dollars to provide seventy four thousand six hundred and eighty five costumes. Did they clothe the extras? Thirty six thousand trinkets. <gasps> wow, that why? Uh, it supposedly still holds the record for the most individual costumes ever used in a film. Yeah, I would imagine so. I can't believe they would clothe the extras. You would think they would just have them wear their own clothing. Yeah, I don't know. Um, critics and other professionals in the film industry often compare the main character of Fog to Todd, actually, um, mostly because of their eccentricities <laughs> and use that to explain why he felt so bound to do this story for his <laughs> one and only film. Um, so funny. Well, I mean, it makes sense because like the first thing that happens is he's like, I can go around the world in eight days. And they're like, we bet you. And he's like, great. I'll leave right now. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they're all like, what? Don't you need to prepare anything? And he's like, nope, I'll go. Bye. <laughs> uh, hey, guess what, family? I'm creating a bricklayer's school. See ya. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> so 
there were ended up being a lot of problems. Funny enough that there were problems with the ceremony and writers uh, this year because he had a lot of problems with the WGA about who should get credit and who did the writing. And mm, interesting. Um, there are also problems with the writers getting the pay that they deserved for what kind of credit they were receiving. Huh. Um, and he ended up being put on the WGA's list of problematic producers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would have done that without any of that anyways. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, another funny thing about this film is this is the film where the idea of celebrity cameos came from. Mm, yeah. um, he did a lot of publicity with this film and people started calling them cameos and that had never happened before. Okay. And so he started using that phrase. What does it mean, cameo? A cameo is like a little brooch with a face on it. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so people started calling them cameos, these little That's performances. And, yeah. he, and he even said like, one of the main things he wanted in this film was you to be going around the world and then you would see little friends along the way, basically, oh, is the way he cute. described it. Yeah. Because he did all of that publicity and started talking about it, that furthered use of the term and then became the way that we describe these small bit parts for big celebrities in yeah. films today. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. The origins of the cameo. Yeah. Um, in the wake of the film's premiere, uh, he spent most of the rest of his life, actually, which was short-lived after this, promoting the film. Um, he did so many events for the film. He published stories in the newspaper about the film. He took out ads all the time in different cities about the film. In the midst of this, he ended up marrying Elizabeth Taylor, oh. becoming the third of her seven husbands. <laughs> And the only one she didn't divorce because he died a year and a month later in a plane crash. Hmm. Wow. This what is, a guy. <laughs> his death is also a very strange story. Um, so he'd had extra fuel tanks installed on his personal plane, which when the tanks were full, made the plane over the safe weight limit, which didn't even include any passengers, luggage, or crew. Okay. Because he wants to go farther? Yes. So he'd already made several trips with everything, like uh -huh. full of fuel and all the extra stuff, which made it like dangerously over the weight limit. And he didn't have any incident up to this point, but it was bound to cause a problem eventually, of course. Um, a couple hours before the flight, actually, he'd tried to get his friends, Joseph Mankiewicz or Kirk Douglas, to come with him on the flight so they could play cards on the flight to pass the time. And they complained that the plane wasn't safe. Good for them. So they decided not to them. go. Oh, he man. literally said to them this quote, Oh, come on. It's a good, safe plane. I wouldn't let it crash. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. This man is chaos walking. Yes. Then by the time of his death, the film had grossed over $33 million. So, But he did crash his plane. So. Yes. And right. so that is even 10 more million than it grossed in its first year. Wow. Too. Wow. Wow. So that is the story of this film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes sense to me. The film is a little crazy. Yeah, so. it is very crazy. And it is strange looking back on it as like a best picture uh -huh. because it does not have any like prestige and there's not any big names attached to it in a way that would mm -hmm. make it want to be like nominated or win. 
I mean, it's not directed by somebody who's won before. It's not produced by somebody who's won anything before. I mean, really, one of the only things is that it's produced by United Artists, who Mm -hmm. is having a hot streak right now, which probably played into it. I'm sure they did a big campaign for it. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of strange. And when you compare it to some of the other films that came out that same year and other films from the same time, it's like not nearly as good. Yeah. Not nearly as well-made or impressive yeah yeah i think i mean the appeal to me in watching it was like you get to see really really cool cinematography of lots of different places around the world i mean i really i know that it's not great but like i really enjoyed like the scene where like they're following them while they're riding an elephant and it's just like the four of them are on the elephant and all the branches are hitting them and like they're like going through the forest and like things like that that are like kind of adventurous that you wouldn't get to experience otherwise. Well, and the cinematography was amazing. Absolutely. And it honestly in some scenes felt Wes Mm Anderson-ish in a way because of the way that the scenes were composed Mm -hmm. and there was a lot of symmetry and Mm -hmm. a lot of like precise placement of things Mm -hmm. a lot of precise movement in some of those scenes yeah Um, but the whole film wasn't that way which was a little strange as well yeah it felt like you had this comedy inserted into this like documentary right but at the same time all of the like cinerama films were this way so like this is cinerama was a collection of like scenes around the world Uh the same way that like the epcot cinerama stuff is yeah and the Christmas Cinerama was the same <laughs> mo- type of movie where it was a collection of random scenes around the world. And, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, and Americans the same were way. really, really fascinated with other cultures and other traditions and rituals and things like that, too. Yeah. Especially once they were not fighting <laughs> against people. Yeah. That's the story of this one. All right. Wow. At the end of every episode, we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film or this episode, and I will go first. Go for it. I would like to thank the Academy for the very apt uh, depiction of America (laughs) in this film. Uh, America is the last place they get to on their journey, and you're going through the whole film, like, seeing the celebration of cultures, there's bullfighting, there's amazing dancing in multiple of the different places, there's, like, ka- Mountains kabuki and, theater, yeah. there's really amazing architecture and really amazing, like, ships and seascapes and all kinds of stuff. Then you get to America, and literally they, like, get off the boat in San Francisco and it is so loud. There's just fireworks happening. Gunshots. There's gunshots everywhere. And they're in the midst of an election. Yes. And he's like, is this some kind of ritual? And they're like, oh, it's an election. And he's like, a political election? Seems like a religious ceremony to me. <laughs> well, and he's thinking like, oh, it must be. It's so big. It must be for like the president. But it was only for like. A San Francisco mayoral yeah. election. It was just so funny to realize. And then he runs into like a drunk Sam Elliott type man who's like, you got to tell me now. Who are you voting for? I'll fight (laughs) you. Very silly. Yeah. And then they end up in a burlesque club and Marlene Dietrich is there. (laughs) But it's just so funny that like that is the cultural version of America well, Jules Verne is a French writer, and so the French opinion of America at the time is that they're loud and obnoxious and 
unkempt. <laughs> well, and it seemed very it, accurate. It did. It seemed like very, um, yeah, very old Americana. Yep. This is our culture even yeah. today. All we care about <laughs> is guns and politics. I would like to thank the Academy for uh, the Asian actors that contributed to the start of Hollywood and the golden age of Hollywood. Yeah. They get no recognition usually. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a big part of culture. And I I think that there was not much opportunity. Uh, There was obviously not much opportunity. And the opportunities to play characters that were true to uh, their cultures were often uh, denied. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I want to thank the Academy for that perseverance of the actors I mentioned and others that didn't get mentioned today, but also were a big part of the industry. Mm-hmm. I would like to thank the Academy for the animal wranglers that must have worked on this film. Oh, my heavens. Yeah. For wrangling nearly 8,000 animals. Uh, there were just so many scenes of animals. Uh, they even rode the ostriches at one point. Yeah, which that was, was pretty so silly. S- yeah, so weird. Um, all the monkeys, all the monkeys in the uh, temple was really cool. Yeah, very. The little skunks there were. They rode on the elephants. They had the buffalo. All the buffalo crossing like the, crossing the yeah, train tracks. That was amazing. It was like three minutes of like full speed buffalo crossing this train tracks and they just kept coming. Yeah, so many of them. I can't imagine like what a headache that would have been. Oh my gosh, you got one shot for that. Yeah. Well, and with all the animals. I mean, animals yeah. are so like temperamental and especially ones that are I would have to imagine more difficult to train yeah. that are not just like Well, and I'm sure your that... average dog and your cat and right. your Right. Yeah. And I'm sure that most of these animals were not trained animals anyways. Yeah, right. They're like local animals. They're just being wrangled. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to those animal wranglers that I'm sure were uh, underpaid and overworked. Absolutely. Well, and finally, I'd like to thank the Academy for for United Artists pulling through again. Wow. I, you know, I think it's really exciting to see United Artists, which is a company that was about artists being united together, mm-hmm. uh, continuing to find ways to make it work and have some success. And obviously they had two major successes this year. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of admiration for Mary Pickford. She's one of the OGs and, mm-hmm. you know, she was a pioneer in this industry, uh, not only as an actor and a producer, but as a businesswoman mm-hmm. and, uh, her cleverness in this financial situation, uh, paved the way for United Artists to continue. And so congrats to them. And I'm happy and would like to thank the Academy for that. Yeah. Good job, United Artists. And Charlie Chaplin, too. Well, thanks for joining us. We have a little special announcement for an episode coming next week. And that will be a Christmas episode. Hooray. It will be an Academy archive. So we're not going too far off brand. Yeah. But we will be talking about all things Christmas. Yeah. some. I mean, there are Christmas Academy Award winning pictures. So Yeah. <laughs> Join us for that if you want to get in the holiday spirit. Yeah. And happy holidays from us at Thank the Academy. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.